Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Unhurrying with the Rule of Life series. The Pulitzer Prize winning biographer David Garrow tells a fascinating story from the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. On January 27, 1956, just a month after King was elected to the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was the organization that was started in response to Rosa Parks' arrest, King was already a month in at a breaking point. He thought that the boycott would not last more than a few weeks, but as it dragged on, it became clear that the city was not going to budge. And then he started to receive death threats. On January 26th, the day before, he was jailed or arrested for driving 30 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone and then jailed overnight. Upon his release on the 27th, he came home to a whole new round of anonymous phone calls and death threats with harm to his family. And that night, as you can imagine, he could not sleep out of fear for his own body and that of his wife and children. So he got up and went to the kitchen to make himself a cup of coffee and deal with his anxiety. Years later in a sermon, he said this about that fateful night. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. I prayed a prayer, and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And at the risk of being another white guy quoting Dr. King, I was reading about this story the other day in a blog post summary of this biographer, and as I was, and the, and the author was just making the point how important, I think it was Cal Newport, how important moments of quiet are to come back to ourselves and realize what we're called to do. But I just had this odd thought, what would have happened to Dr. King if he had an iPhone? Seriously, thought experiment. What if that moment of quiet never came? What if there never was the inner voice or he was just uh, like deaf to that inner voice of the Spirit of God, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, and I will be with you. What if instead he reached for his digital appendage and got another text message death threat or a link to another fake news story or just read a tweet of online outrage or again just decided to watch TV? Would there have even been a civil rights movement as we know it today? So much has changed over just the last half century with our foray into the digital age. Um, I know this is kind of the young crowd of the day, and I'm dating myself here a little bit, but I'm just old enough to remember this thing from the 90s that we called boredom. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but I remember like this crazy like mythical era where you'd be standing in line at a coffee shop, and you'd just stand in line. <laughs> That's all you do. you just stand in line. Not stand in line while you text message your friends and your boss and check your email and do a little work and look at the weather and check movie times for the weekend and tweet an Insta, tweet an, tweet, post a picture or whatever. You would just stand there. And then every once in a while, you would be cursed to stand next to like a really extroverted person who would just want to talk to you. And you think, dear God, you're a total stranger. Why are you talking to me, right? Okay, I guess I would just think that. But, um, but I remember it was, it was boring. 
Or I remember like flying across the country in a pre-iPad world and you'd get on a plane with no screen there and it was death. And like maybe you would always bring a book just in case and not a Kindle, a book as in a codex. And, and, then, and then sometimes you would finish your book early and you'd just be like over Minnesota in <laughs> January just with nothing to do, just staring down at the white squares on the ground 20,000 feet below you. And, you know, it's easy to, I do not at all want to romanticize something as inane as boredom, but all of those little moments of quiet were potential portals to God, potential open doors just to come awake to God and the goodness of our life in his world. And now all of those little moments of quiet are just gone. They have been, for the most part, swallowed up by the digital carnivore. A recent Microsoft survey found that 77% of people answered yes when asked, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. Doctors have now labeled this phenomenon phantom vibration syndrome, which you know what that is without even hearing about it. It's that feeling that we get when we think our phone, like it's a text message or a phone call, but it's not. It actually just was a weird, like, bump with a stranger next to us. One doctor said, quote, through bodily habit, your phone actually becomes a part of you. And you become trained to perceive the phone's vibrations as an incoming call or text. So due to these kinds of habits, it becomes really easy to misperceive other similar sensations. So a new fad in Silicon Valley I just read about a few days ago called dopamine fasting which is like a secular monk-like break from all things digital for programmers and entrepreneurs. Because at a neurobiological level, every second we're in the same room as our phone, it is basically screaming at us in all caps, pick me up. And as we said last week, the great threat here isn't just the loss of quiet, as if that isn't enough, but the great threat of the digital age is that it's robbing us of the capacity to be present present to the moment, whatever is in front of us, good, bad, or ugly, present to the person who is in front of us, whoever they are, the barista making our coffee in the morning, or the cashier at Trader Joe's, or our coworker, or fellow student walking in a few minutes late with an odd look on her face, or whatever it is, or above, present to our own soul, what we're feeling and processing our life that day, and above all, present to God. As the Quaker intellectual Douglas Steer once said, we suffer from interior immigration, meaning we're here in body, but we're not here. The, the interior of us, where our mind, our heart, it's off a thousand miles away. We're not present to the here and now. But what is spiritual life if not presence to what is? I mean, if God is the most real thing in all of the universe, if he is reality with a capital R, then how can we even have a spiritual life? without at least a modicum of the capacity to be present. Andrew Sullivan has this great line in his essay for the New York Times Magazine entitled, I Used to Be a Human Being, where he tells this story about checking into a digital detox center and like no phone for multiple days and the withdrawal, and it begins to spark memories of his childhood and the Catholic Church. And then he writes this, the reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. And then he has this haunting line. If churches came to realize that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism but distraction, 
perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. I could not agree more. So is there a practice from the way of Jesus to recapture quiet and with it our capacity to be present? And of course the answer is yes. Most of the time around here we call it silence and solitude. Charismatics and Pentecostals often call it the secret place. Our Catholic brothers and sisters often call it just quiet. Whatever you prefer to call it, as with all of the practices of Jesus, it is based on Jesus' own life. Take a look at this with me from Luke chapter 5, verse 15. This is right after a healing story, which, by the way, the whole story was an interruption, and Jesus' response is wise and gracious and in the power of the Spirit. And then he tells the man that he just healed, hey, don't tell anybody. Yet, verse 15, we read, the news about Jesus spread all of the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That phrase, lonely places, is one word in Greek. It's a remos. It can be translated the lonely place or the quiet place or a solitary place or a deserted place or the desert or the wilderness. It is a place, any place, can be desert, can be mountainous, doesn't matter, can be your back closet. Any place that is free from stimuli, a distraction-free zone, just you, your soul, and God. And notice Jesus withdrew to this aremos in order to pray. That's the language used by Luke. So this wasn't just a day off for Jesus or a time to catch up on a little bit of email or watch a movie while he was folding his laundry. It was a time for Jesus to pray, to really engage with his Father. Now, don't think of prayer here as just asking God for things. That is one type of prayer. It is legitimate. It matters a lot. Luke doesn't give us access to the type of prayer here, and so we have no idea. The text does not say. But I can't help but speculate, just based on my own experience, that what if Jesus' prayer here was closer to what he himself later called abiding, just a kind of resting in God, the source of all life and energy. I think of Ronald Rollheiser's definition of prayer as relaxing into God's goodness. Is that how you think of prayer? What are you doing tomorrow morning? Uh, just relaxing into God's goodness to start my day. Or Douglas Steer, again, said to pray is, quote, to pay attention to the deepest thing I know. We're here for the win is the Russian mystic Theophan the Recluse, who I have to quote just because that name is wicked awesome. To pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever-present, all-seen, within you. What all of these spiritual masters in the way of Jesus are getting at is a type of prayer that feels more like resting than working, where you withdraw, and that's the word used by Luke, from all of the noise and the hurry and the overwhelm and the distraction just to come to rest in God. And notice that Luke writes, Jesus, quote, often withdrew meaning this wasn't a one-time event. This was a regular part of his rule of life. In Luke's gospel alone, you read about Jesus doing this nine times. In fact, I would argue you can chart the frequency, and the more busy and in demand and high profile Jesus became, the more he would slip away into the aremos to process all of that with God. 
Most of us go in the exact opposite direction. The more busy we are, the more demands are put on us, the more responsibilities we have to shoulder in our job, with school, with graduate stuff, whatever, with little kids, with marriage, with family that needs us, whatever the thing is, the more in demand, the more stuff we have on us, the less time we spend in the quiet, the less time we spend in rest or Sabbath, and the less attention we give to our interior life in general. Jesus went in the exact opposite direction. More demand, more profile, more work, more responsibility, more time to rest in the quiet with God. Quiet was not a side thing. I would argue it was core. It was a key facet of his rule of life. And he taught his apprentices to follow his example. Turn with me to the left, just over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, let me read to you a little teaching of Jesus on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus names three practices or spiritual disciplines in the Sermon on the Mount, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which is interesting to see what's Jesus on Jesus' mindset there. But what Jesus has about prayer, to say about prayer, is not what I would expect. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, so notice that word when, Jesus just assumes that his apprentice, not if, when, he just assumes that his apprentices will devote time to prayer. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. That's interesting. Notice he doesn't critique the content of the Pharisees' prayer. He has nothing to say about what you pray for here. That's a little bit more on that later. First thing he has to say is about when and how and where you pray. That's interesting. Take a look at verse 6. When you pray, go into your room. That's okay. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then Jesus goes on. Another way to translate that phrase in secret is your father who sees what is done in the secret place. I like that translation because the secret place or quiet or silence and solitude, whatever you want to call it, it is a place that is both outside of us and inside of us. Another way to say that is there are two dimensions to quiet, external and internal. External is the most straightforward, and basically it's the easy one. You just silence all noise. You turn your phone off, you close your door, you turn off the TV, you tell your roommate to shut the heck up, whatever. You go for a walk in Forest Park. If you have the resources, you, you know, get an Airbnb or you go to a cabin over on the coast. Whatever it is, you just get away from the world of noise and distraction and text messages and sound and music. You just get away from input and stimuli. Strict adherents advocate against reading anything but the Bible in these times. Some even argue against reading the Bible, not because the Bible is bad, but because the whole goal is just to get your soul laid bare before God. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying it's an interesting thing to think about. But then internal quiet, that is a whole other story. And in my experience, it's 10 times harder. If your brain is anything like mine, first off, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Secondly... The moment that I get alone in the quiet, my brain just goes crazy. It's like I don't think I have ADHD, and then I'm like, oh, no, you must, because it just, it's all over the place, and it's anger, and it's lust, and it's worry, and it's the to-do list, and it's ruminating about this thing, and it's all that, and it was that, and just, it's all over the map. My brain just goes nuts. If you were to, like, 
follow me around with a webcam or whatever, and like what you would notice, like I'm not gonna lie, I devote a lot of time to prayer. I'm, I feel pretty good about that. If you were to then get access to what I'm actually thinking about in my time of prayer, you would lose all respect for me and think this dude has no business leading a church at all. <laughs> I don't know what percentage of my prayer time I'm actually in prayer and in, in like relaxing into God's goodness versus just like worrying or thinking about a to-do list or like wondering about the Jawa scene in The Mandalorian last night or whatever it was. But it's, I don't know, 80%, it's a large portion of it because it's hard for my mind to calm down. In fact, a growing number of teachers of the way of Jesus are adding a third S to silence and solitude and writing about silence, solitude, and stillness and saying that the goal is to get to this deep place of calm before God. Um, I was thinking about this early this morning and we're, we're kind of working our schedule out for next summer's vacation just in faith that winter will end and summer will come, right? But I was thinking about this lake we go camping at pretty much every summer out in eastern Oregon, it's beautiful, it's out in the middle of nowhere, and uh, there's no you know, motorboats on the lake or anything, and it's really calm, but then the wind will come up, and it's like you know, a lake where we camp right on the water, and the wind will come up and like, actually creates waves like that crash against the shore, and then after the wind dies down, it doesn't just go back to glass. It takes hours to go from that turbulent kind of chaos on the surface to that beautiful like image of just glass. Sometimes it takes all night long. It's not until you wake up the next morning, it's like, there it is. And there is nothing like that feeling of sitting on a lake of glass in the quiet. I mean, it's just, there's nothing like that in the world. And I think it's a very simple metaphor for what happens to us and our body and our mind at a mental and emotional and even at a spiritual level in the quiet. We come in with all of this turbulent kind of thoughts and emotions, and we're just swirling with agitation and anger and worry and distraction and squirrel, like all of that. But if we sit in it long enough, if we stay with it, if we wait through the pain of boredom and distraction and all of that, we come to this deep place of calm and tranquility and joy and release. It was so well summarized by Julian of Norwich centuries ago in her iconic line, all will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. But in my experience, this does not happen in a hurry. This is a slow and drawn out process. I think, opinion here, not biblical theology, but I think that at least one of the reasons why Jesus and so many of the great men and women of old would often go out into the Aramos or the desert or whatever for long periods of time, for 40 days or for multiple days or all night long or up early in the morning while it was still dark, Mark chapter one, whatever, is because it takes a long time for the human mind to calm down. Just to come to this place of emotional equilibrium and quiet, resting, trust in God. And while both dimensions of silence matter, external and internal, you could say that the goal of external quiet, which is not that hard, is to facilitate internal quiet, which is much harder still. And all of the spiritual masters from the way of Jesus argue that quiet is non-negotiable to a spiritual life. 
Nouwen said it bluntly, with no apology, no footnote, no nuance. Quote, without silence, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. You can't, he basically says, without quiet, you can't follow Jesus. Another way to say that. Centuries before him, St. John of the Cross, that Spanish mystic and just brilliant explorer of the soul, said silence is God's first language. Mother Teresa said God is the friend of silence. More recently, Richard Foster said, our adversary, the devil, majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us involved in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Is that how you think about the devil's work in your life? What's, the, what's Satan doing in your life? Noise, hurry, and crowds. I doubt it. Yet it comes as no surprise that the modern secular world that we inhabit and call home, at least to me, it feels at times like a vast conspiracy against quiet. One author I read recently called it a dictatorship of noise. At a socio-political level, people who don't have a regular kind of rhythm of quiet in their rule of life are much easier to manipulate because they are more reactive than active, more busy than wise, less in tune with identity and calling. So it's easier to get them to buy your product or vote for your candidate or retweet your hashtag or consume your media. At a psychological level, as was said so well just a moment ago by Tristan and John, there are so many things in the depth of our soul that we just don't want to face because of the pain, the shame, the anxiety, the guilt, whatever it is. And so we do everything we can to avoid it, and that's never been easier than ever before. Not only do we have Netflix now, we have Disney Plus too. What? Like, it's so easy to never deal with your crap and just always live in distraction. But yet there's this part of us where we want it, but we kind of don't. Ruth Haley Barton, in her beautiful book on silence and solitude, which is really good if you've not read it, she writes about the push-pull phenomenon, where a part of our soul, part of us, is pulled toward quiet with God because we know that in the quiet, that's where we most find him. But another part of us is pushed away from the quiet because we also find our pain, and it's easier in the short term just to watch Netflix or go out for a drink with our friends. But then at a spiritual level, I also wonder about the enemy's role in all of this. Again, that Foster line, the devil, hurry, noise, and crowds, really? I think of C.S. Lewis's masterpiece, The Screwtape Letters, which is a work of satire. It's, you know, fictional, but a series of letters written from a senior demon to his apprentice demon. And Screwtape, the senior demon, calls the devil's kingdom, which is at war with Jesus' kingdom, a, quote, kingdom of noise, and one point boasts, quote, we will make the whole universe a noise in the end. I can't help but wonder if there is a strange, bizarre alliance between digital capitalism, politics, the entertainment industry, our own human vulnerability, and even the devil's kingdom itself, all set on keeping us away from the quiet place. Why? Well, because, as best I can tell, at least five things happen in the quiet place that are not impossible but are hard to get anywhere else. This will not take long. Number one, if you're taking notes, we face down evil and we confront reality. 
Many of us think of silence and solitude as just like, you know, a little me time, in particular if you're introverted like myself. You're like, great, oh, I'm all about this. This is like a spiritual excuse to be a narcissist and just make my own time, right? I just want to relax, do my own thing, read a little book, do whatever your thing is, enjoy a little pleasant diversion. It's a Christian book, don't worry, but just kind of have my own time. And that's great. I'm, I'm all for that. But that is not the silence and solitude of Jesus who went into the Aramos to fight the devil and wild beasts. It's not the silence and solitude of John the Baptist who went out there to change the course of Israel. Or of St. Antony, if you're not familiar with him, fourth century, wealthy dude, gave up everything, was wrecked by a sermon, literally sold all of his possessions, moved out into the wilderness, went off for years as a hermit to pray, and later, a biography written about him inspired basically the entire monastic tradition that has lasted now for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I remember reading his biography, which is a, it's a famous work. Have you ever read like a really old book? Not like from the 80s, like old, old. And it's really famous. It's the kind that like really pretentious, smart people quote. And you're like, you sometimes want to read it to feel smarter than you really are. And then you read it and you're like, this is so boring. <laughs> or it's so weird. Or war and peace, has anybody? Oh my gosh, right? So it was one of those experiences for me at first. I was like, this book is bizarre, and it's weird, and he's out in the desert multiple years in, and he's seen the devil, and he's seen all the hordes of demons, and you're like, this dude like, really needs a good doctor, you know? <laughs> and that was honestly my first thought, was this guy was not stable. But then I began to wonder, what, what if actually he was very sophisticated, and what if actually his perception of reality was way more in tune than my own? He had no iPhone, he had no Mandalorian show to watch, he had no people to talk to. He was just out there, his soul laid bare before reality. There's, there's this sense that silence and solitude is a war. If you're out there and it doesn't feel like this quiet, restful, joyful, it feels like a war, you're not alone. Um, Jude and I, a year, year and a half ago, were in Ireland and we took a few days because I wanted to visit Skellig Michael, which is a famous island. It's a world UNESCO heritage site that uh, was popularized by Star Wars when they destroyed all things Star Wars. That's a whole other sermon. We can't talk about the pain of the most recent movies. But it's the island where Luke Skywalker dies. That island, if you can think of it, and you know like the stone huts, if you've seen that just really tragic movie, um, the, sto the stone huts, those are actually real. They're there. They're over 1,000 years old, and that's a monastery. That was a Celtic. Celtic monks went out there. Skeldic Michael is this bizarre, beautiful, harsh island. It's the first, it's the westernmost point in Europe. So it's the first rock landmass that the wind coming off crossing the Atlantic hits, and it's just fierce, hence the jagged, like sharp alien nature to the island. And monks went out there over a thousand years ago, and they named it Skellig, which is Gaelic, I think, for island. Michael, after Michael, the archangel in the book of Revelation, because he does battle with Satan. And they went out there to pray alone and do battle with Satan and the waters of chaos on behalf of Ireland and all of Europe. The Pope, everyone would write them letters, thank you for fighting on our behalf to keep us safe from the devil. Is, that's not how I think about like a day at Mount Angel Abbey to pray and journal and like read a little Henry Nouwen. That's not how I, that's not how I think about it. But that was the mindset of a Jesus, of a John the Baptist, of a St. Anthony, of a Skellig Michael, that silence and solitude was not a place we go to feel good, though that may happen, but it was a place we go to fight evil both outside of us and inside of us 
Speaking of Henry Nouwen, he writes this, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born, the place where the emergence of the new man and the new woman occurs. He goes on to say, solitude is the furnace of our transformation. What a great line. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society. We're so easy to manipulate. And continue to be entangled in the illusion of the false self. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. I just think of the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. If you know that, he's out in the desert for 40 days. And God says to him when he's on this mountain twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I don't think it's like a, what are you doing here? I think it's like a gentle nudge. What are, what are you doing here, Elijah? An invitation to explore what's underneath the surface of his heart, his motivation, his anger, his ambition, his jealousy, his fear, why are you here? Why are you doing what you're doing? That is a scary question to ask, in particular if you work in church leadership. And this is why he's, and God, there's an invitation from God just to explore what's underneath there. This, I think, is why so many of us go to great lengths to avoid the quiet place, because the truth comes out. What, and the truth is not always pretty. Whatever is down there comes up to the surface of our mind and our emotions. Whether it is pain, anxiety, disappointment, doubt in God, anger, resentment at the reality of our life, or joy, gratitude, hope, dreams for the future, whatever, or some mixture of all of the above. But we have to sit with it long enough for the full bandwidth of thoughts and emotions to come up and then pass through of us so that they no longer own us. Instead, we are free. Because the reality is this stuff is in us and it will come out whether we set aside time in the quiet or not. The question is just will it leak out in unhealthy or even toxic ways that sabotage our soul and our best attempts at love or will it come out in the safe place of the Father's love? So many people never experience the depth of God's love because they're never actually honest with God or themselves about what a mess they are. We're too scared to face the evil in us, so we justify, we blame shift, we don't take responsibility, we prop ourselves up with feel-good spirituality and self-help Christianity, and, at, and ironically, the exact opposite. We then live with more guilt and more shame because we've never actually held who we are with no excuse up to the eyes of God and realized that he's there smiling on us in love because it is always hard to face reality. M. Scott Peck, I've quoted this to you so many times, he defines mental health as dedication to reality at all costs. Because reality is hard to bear. But it is only by facing reality, the truth about who we actually are and what our world and our life in it actually is, facing that reality before God, it's only there that one, we can begin to experience God's love for us as messed up as we are, and two, we can actually begin the process of healing, growth, change, and freedom. The quiet place offers us a chance to move from self-deception to self-awareness as we face reality under God's loving gaze. 
Secondly, in the quiet, we experience God's compassionate love. If we're there long enough, we become aware that we're not alone when we're alone. We become aware of the Trinitarian community of agape that is loving us as we are. The hard truth about ourselves and all of the evil that's not only out there but in here is laid bare before the loving eye of God. And his compa- we realize there's compassion. He's our Father. There's love. And we experience God's love. Not just read about it or hear a sermon about it or study a theology textbook or watch an explainer video about it. All fantastic stuff. I'm doing one of them right now. But we have to experience the love of God in our spirit. That's what Paul meant when he said his prayer, that you may know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. He, brilliant intellectual as he was, was writing about experiential knowledge. We have to experience the love of God through the medium of the Spirit as the Trinitarian community comes to us in the depth of our soul. I'm convinced that one of, if not the main reason, that so many followers of Jesus do not actually, when they are honest, experience the love of God is because simply of how busy they are, how noisy the world is, how much we're on our phone, the level of distraction, the exhaustion that we think is normal. Jean Vanier, not an introverted monk by any stretch of the imagination, founder of Arc, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, modern-day saint, social activist, started communities all around the world, he said this about quiet. We can live and experience the love of God. How? This we can do by setting aside moments of silence. Because God reveals to himself essentially through silence in moments of peace and in the moments of inner quiet. He said that, I think that was in his last, I'm pretty sure it was his last book, when he was 90-something years old. Where do you experience God? Social activist that he was in moments of inner, not just outer, inner quiet. If we want to experience God and his love, we have to carve out and then cultivate time in the quiet place to let God love us into people of love. Third thing that happens in the quiet is as we go through all of this, then we yield. We yield. In the quiet, one of the hard truths about myself that I at least am forced to confront is all the ways I've been frantically trying to control my life and controlling many of the people in my life to get to the to get the life and events that I want and that I think I need to be happy and safe. And whether you're a control freak like me or not, most of us struggle with this at some level, and control is the enemy of trust in God and of spiritual formation into people of love. Controlling people are not loving people. My worst moments are as a a parent or as when I'm controlling and I'm parenting out of fear rather than faith and trust and honor and respect. In the quiet, we release the illusion of control. And that's what it is. Nine times out of 10, it is an illusion. We're not nearly as in charge of our life as we want to believe and self-help wants to tell us for a price. And we come, after we come through this illusion, we come to the place of what Ignatius of Loyola called indifference, 
or a number of scholars argue a better translation of the Spanish word he used is freedom. I like that, freedom. It's what the French mystics called detachment, where we detach, not in like a Buddhist or Stoic kind of like negate desire. Rather, we reprioritize our desires. We put our desires in their proper place before God. We put God as ultimate, and we realize that when we are full of life, when we're living with Jesus in the kingdom, sure, we still have desires to get this job or make this money or change our relationship status or for me to have my kids go to a good college and do great in life, all the that make me look good and pop up my ego, all those things, we still have those desires, but we no longer need them to come true for us to be happy and at peace. And so we can love, we can be friends, parents, workers, followers of Jesus who live without fear, which means we live without the attempt to control and manipulate people, which means we're calm and we're loving even when people don't do what we want because we're okay. We're living in the kingdom. This is, this is what we're going for. I think of the story in Luke chapter 22 of Jesus in Gethsemane in his quiet place where right before the cross he prays, not my will but yours be done. That's indifference, freedom, detachment, whatever you want to call it. That's the highest level of maturity where you can have desires. Father, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't Buddhist. He had desires. He was weeping in that moment. But then he was able to set it all on the table before God, release the illusion of control, abandon outcomes to God, and then do what God had called him to do and let come what come. He was okay. This is what it means. This is who we want to become as we follow Jesus. So much of prayer and quiet and spirituality itself is wrestling with God and our own soul and our emotions to get to that place where we can actually follow Jesus' example and let go of outcomes. What David Benner calls surrender to love. That's his language for Jesus' language of take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, which I've always read, take up your cross, deny yourself, as this like grin and bear it, like just die for Jesus or whatever. And there's truth in that. And I, but then it hit me like earlier today. I'm like, I've never died, so I don't know what that's like exactly. I'm guessing it's not a lot of hard work. I'm guessing it just happens to you. However, I don't know, I'm not an expert on the subject yet. I will be, and by then it'll be too late for me to tell you about it. <laughs> or if I do, it'll be a best-selling book, I'll get rich and have fun with that. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's different. It's not something we do, it's something we don't do. We yield, we let go, we surrender to love. And if and when we come to that inner more than just emotional, volitional place where we really, we really turn our will over to God, or maybe a better way to say it is we, we align our will with that of God, and we say, okay, God, I, I'm still in control of my body to some extent, but I will do what you have for me to do. When we release, we are set free into this new space of calm and tranquility and joy and gratitude and a deep sense of well-being no matter what comes or doesn't come. We yield and we're set free. Fourth, we hear the gentle whisper. That's a quote from 1 Kings 19 where, you know, um, Elijah hear, hears God's voice as a gentle whisper or other translations have as a still small voice. Followers of Jesus has, have been using that language for thousands of years just because it rings so true to so many of our experience that when we hear the voice of God in our mind and in our life, it doesn't sound like a deafening shout. It doesn't sound like a fundamentalist preacher with a bullhorn. It sounds like a gentle whisper of love. 
I think, and I, why? I, don't, I honestly don't know. I think, again, speculation here, why we're doing that. <laughs> I think it's because one of the main things God is trying to do is to pastor us, to lead us in Psalm 23's language to quiet waters and still pastures, Amen. to lead us away from the noise and the hurry and the distraction to the quiet, to rest, to trust, to freedom, to give the waters of the lake time to settle in our mind. Hence, Ignatius of Loyola's line, quote, always try to keep your soul in peace and quiet. That is some good advice. In a world that says always try to like keep your game up and keep your hustle going and make it, always try to keep your soul in peace and quiet. Because that is where we hear God's voice, where we get his vantage point on reality, and often where we get a sense of assignment. Elijah came out of the desert with an assignment from God. Go anoint Hazael, king of Aram, Jehu, king of Israel, Elisha to succeed you as prophet. Jesus came out of the quiet place in Mark 1 with real clarity. Let us go into other towns. For this reason I was sent. Paul came out of his time in the desert of Arabia with real clarity around this is what the gospel is. This is how we translate kingdom of God to the Gentiles. I'm called to the Gentiles and to kings. I have to go and I have to go now. We come out of the quiet often, not always, but often with the sense of identity, who we are, who we're not, and calling, the sense of direction. This is what I am meant to do next. There's the next step on my spiritual journey. And finally, number five, we return then in love. We follow Jesus' example and we withdraw, as he did, to return as he did. Jesus was not a monk, not to slam a monk, but Jesus was not one. And even the early monks used to say, we withdraw from the world for the world. We withdraw from people for people, meaning the goal isn't just to get away from it all and all the stress and the noise. The goal is act sure that, that's a means to an end. The end is to come back to people in love. Otherwise, in particular if you're introverted like myself, our quiet is just another version of spiritualized narcissism and self-love. As the saying goes, the opposite of contemplation isn't activity, but reactivity. Meaning the opposite of a contemplative life. I don't know about you, I want to be a contemplative. I want to be like a pseudo wannabe monk with a family <laughs> and a job and all of that. Like I, I want to live a contemplative life where I just spend hours, as much time as possible, just sitting before the face of God, looking at God, looking at me in love, transforming me into a person of love and joy and peace over decades and decades and decades. I want to become that. But I have a job. I have a life. I got stuff to do. I have bills to pay. I have children to raise. That's not a problem. You can be a contemplative and have a job and work hard and be generative and do a lot in the world and be around people and host community and lead and whatever your thing is. The opposite of a contemplative life is not action, it's reaction, where you just live in this like tyranny of the urgent and you just respond to this text, this email, this thing, this, okay, let's watch the TV show, okay, let's buy that thing, I don't know why, okay, let's go over here this week and let's just, and you're just reactive and you're just manipulated by digital capitalism and politics and Satan himself and your own stuff and you just spend your whole life wandering around with no quiet center. When we spend time in the quiet, regardless of what your personality type is or where you fall in the introvert, extrovert spectrum, we often come out of it, if we're there long enough, with a real sense of compassion. Like, I don't know about you, I often go into the quiet mad at somebody, 
or mad at myself. I often go in believing what sociologists call the myth of pure evil, that I am the righteous, innocent victim and everybody else is the iniquitous perpetrator. They are evil, I am good. And then I realize that's almost true, but not quite. They're 99% evil, I'm 1% evil, you know? <laughs> and you begin to see, ah, oh, well, I imagine, I can understand how they would think that, and okay, I kinda shouldn't have done that thing, or you know, that's lame, but I would likely say the same thing if I was in that situation. And all of a sudden, I just begin to experience the compassion of the, as I sit with the Spirit of God long enough, and he begins to help my heart calm down and realign. It's, been, it's, been, it's got off the track. It's been derailed. Help my heart get back in line with his heart. I begin to sense his compassion for other people that I'm at odds with well up in my heart. And then often I come out not just with compassion, but with clarity. Like, this is what I am to do. This is how I'm to do it. This is who I am to love. Every, most mornings, not every morning, I forget on a regular basis, um, or miss my time, like real life happens, but most mornings um, I make it my goal to just sit at the end of my quiet time and just have a little listening prayer and just to ask the spirit in my mind what would be pleasing to you today? Because I've just so, and that probably sounds more virtuous than it really is, I've just come to the deep realization and trust and experience through experience that when I live for God's pleasure, that's when I experience the most pleasure because he's my father and he wants what's best for me and he knows better than I do what is best for me. And so his pleasure and my joy are not at odds, they're one and the same. Again, Ignatius of Loyola said, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. And so often I will just sit with that question, God, what would be pleasing to you today? And I can tell you this, Eight times out of 10, it's a very small, very easy act of love for somebody that I'm in a relationship with. When I actually sit in the quiet with God, the main thing he does is calm my spirit down and direct me to small acts of love. That might sound non-glamorous. You might wish that I was hearing prophetic words about revival in Norway or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but that's not, but I'm not there yet. Mostly I just calm down, I realize all will be well, and just one or two little ideas of, why don't you take your daughter out for T-bar on Friday? Why don't you text so-and-so? Why don't you encourage that one person? Like just really simple, short, easy things most of the time. And as I live for God's pleasure, I begin to tap into joy. So we face down evil, and come to confront reality. We experience God's compassionate love for us as we are in the mess, the evil that's even in us. We yield, we, we let go of outcomes, we surrender to love, we're set free from the need for our life to go a certain way to be happy. We hear that gentle whisper of God, that sense of direction and love, and we return with a new compassion and clarity in how we are to love others. You see why all the spiritual masters argue that quiet is, as now and said, indispensable. But to live a life of quiet in a world of noise, in a world with a phone, with Wi-Fi, in a city, in an urban environment, with friends, with a job, with responsibilities, with all of that, with email access, all of the stuff, to live a life of quiet is a kind of rebellion and resistance against that dictatorship of noise. Thomas Merton called silence a protest and reparation against the sin of noise. He granted that noise was not actually a sin, 
But then he said, the turmoil and confusion and constant noise of modern society, and this is brilliant, are the expression of the ambience of its greatest sins, its godlessness and its despair. Think about our city. As wonderful as our city is, as great as the ice cream and the donuts are and all of the stuff, if you press down past that veneer that only applies to whatever percentage of people that have enough money to do the things, you realize that our city is full of godlessness and it is full of despair. He goes on to write, a world of propaganda, of endless argument, vituperation, criticism, or simply of chatter is a world without anything to live for. And then he said this, those who love God, which I know you guys, you love, most of you love God, should attempt to preserve or create an atmosphere in which he can be found. Christians, and here's his advice, Christians should have quiet homes. Do you agree with that, disagree with that? Christians should have quiet homes. Throw out television if necessary. He's writing before the digital age. Provide people with places where they can go and be quiet. Relax minds and hearts in the presence of God. For many, it would mean great renunciation and discipline to give up these sources of noise, but they know that is what they need. I'm sitting in my house this afternoon, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have a home and a roof over my head. And Sunday is kind of a long day, but I get a little about two-hour break in the afternoon between the morning and the evening. And I'm extra tired today just because real life happens. I got back late last night from Bend. It was, we had a great time, but it was just tiring. And got home, I'm tired, and then woke up and had today. And I was sitting there this afternoon, and you know when you get so tired that like you can't actually do the things that are restful because you're just mad at the world and want to watch Netflix? And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, you know what I want to do is just go watch the new Jack Ryan show right now. And I'm like, that's probably not what Jesus would do to prepare to preach. I'm guessing that's probably not how he would gear up his spirit, you know, to like bring the message of quiet to Bridgetown Church. And so I just sat there, and we do a thing in our house pretty much any day off. We do quiet time where the kids kind of go to their room. And my son Moses, who's an avid artist, was just sitting at the counter, real quiet, just drawing away. The dog was asleep, and I was just sitting there. And after the, like, digital addiction thing, I was able to actually put the phone away. I just thought, man, what a gift. This quiet is just the quiet itself is healing. I wasn't reading my Bible. I was too tired to even read a book. I was just resting. But just that sense, and I just thought of his line, Christians should have quiet homes. And there's a deep sense in me that just said, yes, something is happening right now by literally doing nothing, just sitting here in the quiet when I'm coming back as exhausted as I am to realize the goodness of my life before God. So our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org slash unhurry. We've done a practice, if you've been around for a few years, around silence and solitude is what we called it before, but a lot of you are new, and even if not, we thought it would be at least worth a week to kind of have another teaching and revisit the practice. We thought it would be worth our time. As we are crafting our own personal rule of life, you're just stepping in, that's the practice we're in right now. We want, as part of that, as we think about our rule of life, again, I've made this case the last couple of weeks, we need to build in counter practices of rest, quiet, focus, clarity, discipline, otherwise we will just get sucked into the muchness and the manyness, the noise, the hurry, the crowds, all of it. 
And so the first kind of counter practice on our list is quiet, silent solitude, the, the secret place, whatever you want to call it. For this week, the practice is so simple. It is just to set aside a little time and a place to come to quiet. I think it was Augustine who in his monastic order was the first one to create what's come to be called an oratory, which in a in historic church building, that's just a room that is always quiet, that is set aside and dedicated to prayer. So anybody can come anytime. It got me thinking, like, it'd be really cool to do that at our new building, like have a couple of rooms that are just open. You're like, you can escape your roommate. You can escape your children, leave them with the spouse or whatever it is and not escape them. Sorry, you can take a whatever. You can go pray for them, whatever the right... <laughs> PC way to say that is, an oratory, and you know, basically said that if, if you can, you should make your own oratory. Most of us do not have the money or the resources or the square footage to have our own private oratory. Some of us do. I think of Penny, who's, you know, 60s empty nester in my community. They have a, not a large home, small home, but all their kids are gone, and so they have an, like a third, second or third bedroom, and she turned, she doesn't call it the oratory, but she turned it into like her prayer room. I stayed there once while they were away, and don't tell her, because I don't know if I was even allowed in the room, but I just sat there. She's uber godly, and I just like soaked up the anointing, you know, <laughs> in like the 65-year-old the woman's like prayer space. I was like, God, make me like Penny. Um, but there, there's something... There's something to that, and, and most of us don't have the resources to create a, an actual oratory in our home or apartment, but we can create a kind of oratory in our rule of life, a time, uh, an early morning hour, a, a, week, a rhythm in our weekend, or a Saturday afternoon, or a Sunday morning, or whatever it is. We're just some kind of a time and a place, a walk in Forest Park, which doesn't cost a penny, whatever it is, where we just set aside time that is dedicated to resting God. Another thing we could play around this week, if you want, is just look to recapture some of those little moments of boredom. Maybe when you get in your car to drive home from work, don't reach for NPR. Wait 10 or 15 minutes, or just process your day with God. Maybe if you go out for a run, like don't listen to a podcast one day. Just run, and just be present, and just be there. Maybe when you get up in the morning and you're waiting for your coffee, don't check the news. Just sit and come awake and practice gratitude with God, whatever it is. Just embrace a little boredom, a little quiet. Look for some times and just see what it does to your soul. And then to end, and I, I, I am done, which means five more minutes. No, I'm kidding, two more minutes. Um, I hesitate to say this next part yet because I don't feel that it's, I don't think I embody this yet um, anywhere close to the degree where I can say this is how you do it. But the long-term goal of this practice is not just to have quiet in our rule of life. It's to become the kind of people who are quiet. I don't know how to say that even when we talk, who have this inner sense of calm and tranquility, to get the quiet so deep into our muscle memory and our neural pathways that we carry it around in our nervous system, in our body, in our person. I read a book this week from an African, Cardinal Robert Serra from Guinea, West Africa, and he's this beautiful book on quiet. It's called The Power, I think it's called The Power of Quiet. And he writes this, at the heart of man, there is an innate silence. For God abides in the innermost part of every person. God is silence. And this divine silence dwells in man. God carries us and we live with him at every moment by keeping silence. 
Nothing will make us discover God better than his silence inscribed in the center of our being. If we do not cultivate this silence, how can we find God? Thomas Kelly called this same deep center of the soul the unhurried center of peace and power. What all of these writers are saying is there's, and again, this is hard for me to put language around. I I have had this experience. It's just hard for me to articulate it. There is this deep part in us below the surface of our mind and our spirit that is calm, that is quiet, that is still. And there's this phenomenon with God where we get to this place of quiet where our quiet touches God's quiet. Our spirit touches God's spirit. Our desire touches God's desire. Our will deep below the surface of our emotions, our worry, our anger, our distraction, our lust, our noise, our to-do list, deep below the boss who's mad at us, the neighbor or relative or mom or brother or sister we're at crossways with, deep below all of that, there is this place where our spirit touches the spirit of God and it's like the bedrock underneath a mountain. And the weather comes and goes, but down there, there is something solid and stable. And I don't even know how to put language around it, but the more we get in touch with that part of us that maybe is the God who is silent inside of us. He's still creator, we're still creature. Not a blurring of categories, but Jesus said it plain and simple in the Gospel of John. The Father is in him and we are in Jesus and all of us are one deep in us, where our spirit touches the spirit of God, the more we can live, not just, not just visit that place, but live from that place and carry that place closer to the top of our awareness all week long, the more we can live, as Julian said, all will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.